Well, I love that last song that we just sang and written by a worship leader by the name of uh, Aaron Keys. And uh, you may want to write his name down and go online and see if you can download some of his music. I've got several of his albums on my iPhone and enjoy listening to him and uh, very biblical lyrics that he's written. And um, I think that song is a, a great example of how God designed music um, to allow the word of Christ to richly dwell within us. And we, we talk about how the music is just not a time for Sunday morning only, a time for us just to emote here uh, before the Lord, but it really is training and equipping us for what we might face in, in the week ahead or the months or years ahead. And um, I know that song was ministering to, to those of you that are going through difficult times, those fires, those floods, right, trials and suffering, that song just really ministers to your soul, and, 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 and that song may have been, for some of us, training and equipping us for something that's, that's about to happen, something that we're about to go through, and hopefully with that biblical truth um, sung into our hearts and our minds, right, uh, when we are in that moment of trial that we'll remember those biblical truths, and uh, I, I was reminded as we were singing that of a, somebody I just recently spoke to who's gone through and is still going through a horrific trial. I, I just can't even imagine what they've had to go through. And they said to me that we're not blaming God for this. Um, we know that God has only loved us through this. And I thought, well, that's profound, right? To get to that point that even though there's been lots of pain um, and heartbreak and grief, um, they, they just know it's an expression of God's love towards them. And that, that's evidence of God's grace working in somebody's life to get them to, th- to, that, to think through that process, right? To get them to that point where they're just resting in the love of God and all of that. So I'm glad that song is one of the ones we're singing now. Uh, I trust it'll have a great impact in, in all of our lives as we continue to sing it together. Just want to also remind you about tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. right here uh, in, in our sanctuary where we'll be having a memorial service for Harry Burks. And if you didn't get the email, uh, we've been praying for Harry for really the last couple of years as he's kind of gone downhill um, physically and he's just really been struggling. And this, and this last Thursday night, uh, about 8.30, uh, he passed away at the, the Houston Hospice Care and uh, I, was, uh, I was selfish, I'll admit that, when I got word when we were on vacation that Harry had to go back in the hospital and that he had a, a blood clot go into his lung, which is typically fatal, and uh, he was going into hospice. I prayed, Lord, please have him hang on till I get back, because I want to say goodbye to my friend. <laughs> and, um, and the Lord was gracious. I got to be with him two hours before he died. And, uh, and so it was a special time with, with um, Ann and his, his, uh, their daughters and, and uh, him. And so um, anyway, we're going to have a memorial service tomorrow at 11. And, um, you know, be praying for that. I want to encourage you all to be here if you're able to. Uh, be praying specifically as the gospel goes forth. And, uh, you know, I think this is, um, as it is anyone's memorial service, this is Harry's last opportunity to preach Christ, to proclaim the gospel. And his unsaved family are, are going to be there. And uh, so uh, this is his final parting shot, right? And he lived well. And so his, his moral service is going to be easy to, easy to do uh, because uh, Harry exalted Christ with his life. And, um, and so I just get to talk about how much Harry loved Christ. And, and uh, so uh, we appreciate your prayers for that and uh, specifically for his unsaved family. And, um, you know, if you didn't know Harry... You wouldn't understand Harry, and you probably wouldn't even like Harry, okay? But if you knew Harry, you loved him. And uh, he was dear and precious, and I can honestly say he was one of my best friends. I don't know how that happened. An 83-year-old guy became one of my best friends, but he did. And uh, I just, the last week, I've just been reminiscing uh, all the memories I have about Harry Burks and the things we've been through together, but he... Uh, he has been a very faithful, loyal uh, member of this church from day one and, and a very faithful, loyal friend to me personally. He's always had my back. No matter what was happening, he always has my back. And, um, you know, some of you, maybe all you've ever known of Harry, you, you don't even know it's Harry, but it's that older gentleman that would always corner me after church every Sunday, right? 
And, and I just kind of got used to that, that, that Harry was going to critique either my grammar or my theology, one of the two, um, because I typically messed up something. And so uh, he wanted to make sure that I knew that I had said that wrong or that I should have said it this way. And, and uh, you know what? At first, uh, that kind of annoyed me a bit. Um, but over the years, I, I grew to appreciate that. Um, C.H. Spurgeon said he had a guy uh, in his church who every Monday morning would send him a letter telling him everything wrong with his sermon. And at first, Spurgeon was like, who does this guy think he is, you know? And he despised the guy. And then over time, though, that, he, Spurgeon said that that man became one of his closest and dearest friends. And uh, he appreciated that man because he helped him be a better preacher. And I could say that about Harry. He helped me to be a better preacher. And um, I even had someone one time, Harry was doing his annual Sunday or weekly critique, and uh, I was just listening, and, and, uh, uh, and, and so he left, and, and then the next person waiting in line came up, and he said, they were shocked. They were like, I can't believe that guy had the audacity to talk to the pastor that way. I'm like, that's just Harry. He does that every week, and guess what? He's earned the right to do that because he's complimented me way more than he's ever criticized me. And so, um, anyway, I'm going to miss Harry, and I know those of us that know uh, Harry uh, will, uh, can say the same. Um, it just won't be the same around here without him. But anyway, be here tomorrow, 11 o'clock, and uh, we'll see what the Lord will do with that service. Well, um, th- th- I was just thinking about this morning and, and uh, what, what's been going on in, in the life of our church and in my life um, this summer. And it seems that uh, the sermons, all the sermons this summer, most of them anyway, uh, have been focused on the subject of sanctification. And I honestly wasn't planning for that um, I think it's something that the Spirit of God has just uh, wanted to emphasize this summer with us, and we definitely planned the Holy Habits series on, on, on Wednesday nights, and that's uh, um, been very helpful for all of us to remember some of the, 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 the habits that we need to be developing to grow in godliness, and I've tried to supplement that on Sunday mornings and just uh, talking about this whole idea of sanctified sweat and the role that the spiritual disciplines and that discipline in general plays, right, uh, in our spiritual lives. And uh, we've been learning um, what we can do based on what Christ has done to grow and mature us in our relationship with God. And we've talked about how sanctification is this spirit-empowered process by which we're progressively transformed into the likeness of Christ. Uh, The process uh, essentially involves being set apart from sin unto God, and that's what sanctify means it means to be set apart or to be holy and so we're talking about being set apart from sin uh, and set apart to God and so this process um, really is rooted and grounded in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we know that through Christ's life and death and resurrection the power that sin once held over us has now been shattered and the punishment for sin that we deserve to pay has been satisfied amen however we continue to be seduced by the presence of sin which as we learned a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 12 so easily entangles us remember that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so what easily entangles us. Listen, we we mentioned that sanctification is just plain, old-fashioned hard work. Sanctification is hard. You know what's easy? Sinning. That's the easiest thing to do is sin. And and we do it by nature. It's, It's second nature. I wouldn't even say it's not second nature. It's our nature. It's first nature. And so the easiest thing we can do in life is, is to sin and to get easily entangled uh, in, in sin. And so that's why we need to spend the rest of our lives, as we've been talking about, warring against sin, battling and fighting sin, resisting sin, fleeing from sin, mortifying sin, laying aside sin, striving against sin, and, and you ready for this? And repenting of sin. Repenting of sin. And the reality of the Christian life is that We will never be sinless until we get to heaven. And no matter how hard we fight and strive, and no matter how much we flee and resist, it is inevitable that we will still sin at times. Whether it's in our thoughts, our motives, our our words, our attitudes, our, our actions. 
The issue is not whether or not we'll sin, but what we're going to do when we sin. And I was thinking that a critical part of the sanctification process is confessing sin and seeking forgiveness and repenting from sin. I mean, you, you don't understand sanctification if you don't understand how to confess your sin and seek God's forgiveness for it. In fact, I was talking to someone uh, just a few weeks ago after the sermon, and they mentioned that they had had a conversation one time with someone that felt like 1 John 1.9 doesn't apply to Christians. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that that's talking only to unbelievers. That's talking about initial salvation and that's it. And so that we as Christians no longer have to confess our sin to God because it's already been forgiven, past, present, and future, and so we don't have to ever confess any sin ever again. And I was like, are you serious that, that somebody actually believes that? That Listen, that is just a normal, natural part of the, confe- of the sanctification process. Granted, there is a, a crisis in our lives where we come to Christ, where we're regenerated, we're born again, and we confess our sin, and we seek God's forgiveness, and we repent, right? There's that initial uh, confession and repentance. But then that's a, there's, a, there's also an element, there's an ongoing process of confessing and, and, and seeking forgiveness and repenting as Christians. It's part of the sanctification process. Because the reality is that every one of us sins every day. Or is that just me? Am I, am I the only one that sins every day? Uh, multiple times a day? How about we sin every hour? How's that? Maybe a little more accurate, right? And, and whenever we sin, it's like we take a step away from God. And then we sin again and we take another step away from God. And then we sin again and we take another step away from God. And next thing you know, we are really far away from God. And the question is, when we, when we walk away from the Lord, how can we get back? Well, what, what can we do to, to get from here back to here where, where we're intimate with the Lord again? And we're right with God. Well, the Bible calls that repentance, turning from sin back to God. And I don't think there's any better explanation and illustration of repentance in the Bible than David's penitent prayer in Psalm 51. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there, Psalm 51. And here we find the classic description of repentance in the Old Testament. It describes for us the, the elements and the steps of, of genuine repentance. This, is, this, this psalm helps us to see what biblical repentance looks like and also sounds like. And if I had to put a title on Psalm 51, I would simply call it a roadmap for repentance. A roadmap. For repentance, and maybe a, a subtitle might be A Sinner's Guide Back to God. A Sinner's Guide Back to God. And I'll be honest with you this morning that I have turned to this passage of Scripture more than any other passage during my Christian life. And it has served me well as a map, as a guide to help me find my way back to God after I sin. Now, if you're connecting the dots, you're like, okay, if that means, if he comes, if this is the one pass he goes to the most, or the other pass in Scripture, to find his way back to God after your sins, this guy must sin a lot. Absolutely. I do. I'm the worst sinner I know. And so this psalm has really ministered to my soul, probably unlike any other portion of God's Word. And so for the next couple of weeks, what I want to do is just unfold this map if you will, this road map and, and, and seek to explain it to you and, and to point out some things to you so that it can serve you well as a guide that you can keep with you at all times um, th- that you could use to find your way back to God whenever you sin and walk away from it. Um, this is kind of a, a, like a little, a, literally a little map you want to keep in the back pocket, your back pocket that you don't leave home without. Because you're going to need it every day of your life as you continue to strive against sin. I wish I could tell you that, that uh, you know, you're, you're, you're never going to sin ever again. I, 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 that would be a great message, wouldn't it? That would preach. I mean, that would be fun to listen to, right? We'd all go out here going, ah, right? But that's just not the truth of God's word. 
before the day's over, you're going to sin again. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? And so you got to know how to confess sin. You got to know how to seek forgiveness. You got to know how to repent. And that's what this psalm shows us. Someone wrote this about Psalm 51. He said, Psalm 51 needs to be familiar ground for every pilgrim to Zion. David's confession of his sin and prayer for divine grace is exemplary. Many are the occasions when we need to imitate David's repentance in those seasons when we should deal honestly with God concerning our sins. Well, I trust that you're one who deals honestly with God concerning your sins and maybe, maybe you haven't dealt honestly with God regarding your sin up until this point in your life and so maybe God will use our study in Psalm 51 to help you begin to deal honestly uh, with your sin before the Lord. But before we look at the psalm itself, I want you to notice uh, the subtitle that comes before it and I'm assuming your Bible has a subtitle like mine does and uh, not all the psalms have subtitles. Um, those subtitles aren't necessarily inspired by the Spirit like the text is itself, but they, they oftentimes are helpful uh, in understanding the context or what, um, what prompted the prayer or uh, what, the, what the situation was that, that lent itself to, to the psalmist writing what they wrote. And so notice it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, there's a lot going on in that little sentence, isn't there? And, uh, and yet we, we need to view this psalm in its historical context in order to fully understand and, and to truly appreciate what David uh, says here. And, and if you know anything about David's life, you, you know that it had all the makings of, of what we call a Cinderella story. I mean, he was a farm boy from an unknown family. He was the youngest in his family. Uh, he had no formal education, no professional training, and yet he was chosen to be, be the leader of his country, and he became one of the greatest kings in the history of the world. And the story of his life is, is, is both fascinating and heartbreaking all at the same time. It's filled with excitement and intrigue and, and irony. And as you'll remember, uh, he was a teenager when he was chosen by the reigning king to serve in the royal palace, but King Saul soon saw David's giftedness and he realized it was only a matter of time before he would replace him on the throne. And so in a jealous rage, Saul tried to kill David and, and, and throw his sword at him, or excuse me, throw a spear at him, and he had to flee from the palace and hide out in the wilderness. But that didn't stop Saul. He was crazed uh, in, in his rage and he tracked David down like a wild animal and made several attempts to kill him but was unsuccessful and ironically Saul eventually killed himself and just as he had expected David was crowned king in his place and David very, from the very outset experienced amazing and unprecedented success at the outset of his reign no king would stand against him his kingdom dominated all the others. He extended the borders of, of, of the nation of Israel uh, further than they had ever been before. He secured peace and prosperity for all the Jews, and he became extremely popular among his, his countrymen. But then it happened. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. That's 2 Samuel 11, 1. If you check it. And that verse marks the turning point in David's life. Because at the height of his career, at the, at the peak of his success, David made a tragic decision that caused his life to come crashing to the ground. I think you're well aware of the story of Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband. But for those that may not be familiar with it, uh, David, while he was at home, uh, went up to his, while all the men were off to war, was up on his roof and he looked down and saw this beautiful woman uh, bathing. And he lusted after her and he inquired about her and he found out that, it, that she was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And he had, nevertheless, he invited her to come to his palace. He slept with her and sent her back home. Then word came that she was pregnant. 
And so he had to figure out how he was going to fix this problem. And so he invited Uriah, her husband, back from the front lines and uh, commended him for his faithful service and encouraged him to go home and enjoy his wife. Well, Uriah was a man of integrity and he slept on the doorstep of David's palace and said, how could I go home and enjoy my wife while all the other men are out there sacrificially serving the kingdom of Israel? And so the next night, David was desperate and so he got Uriah drunk and thinking, well, now that he was under the influence, he would go home and sleep with his wife and then David's sin would be covered. Well, he still had the integrity even as under the influence to stay at the, at the door of the, of the palace. And so David had to resort to sending a letter, a note to Joab with Uriah and basically said, I want you to put Uriah at the very front where the battle is the fiercest and then when he's not expecting it, without him knowing, I want you to retreat so he'll be killed. And that's what happened. And um, after Bathsheba mourned, the loss of her husband, David took her as his wife. And they had Solomon. Or I should say, that, that child died, right? Um, they had Solomon after that. The point is, David did everything he could to cover up his sin for almost a year. And everything seemed to be going just fine until the prophet Nathan showed up and we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the next chapter. And uh, you know how that went, right? 2 Samuel chapter 12, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came and said to him, and he tells him this story about two men, right? A rich man and a poor man. One had a bunch of sheep, and one had this, and the other one had just one little ewe lamb, and, and the, the rich man had a guest come, and, and he wanted to cook him some supper. And so instead of killing one of his own sheep, he went and took that man's one lamb, the only lamb he had, the lamb that ate from his own table, slept with the man, and, and he brought him and he killed him and, uh, to feed his guest. And it says, David's anger burned greatly against the man that Nathan was talking about. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He didn't realize he was passing judgment on himself. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Basically, he was describing his own sin, right? His utter lack of compassion for Uriah and his wife Bathsheba. And then Nathan said to David, you are what? The man. David, you're the guy I'm talking about. This story is about you and what you did to Uriah by stealing his wife. Can you imagine what went through David's mind? Can you imagine how he felt? Or can you imagine what he did after Nathan turned around and left and, and David was left all alone with his thoughts before the Lord, overwhelmed by the grief of his sin and the guilt of his sin? Well, we don't have to imagine because the Spirit of God preserved all of it for us here in Psalm 51. This is exactly what went through his mind. This is exactly how he felt. This is exactly what he did after Nathan left him. Psalm 51 is really the Spirit of God's lesson book on repentance and through the example of, of David uh, the spirit of God explains and illustrates the steps that every sinner must take to get back to God to get back in a right relationship with God uh, again he, he shows us the, the, the elements of genuine repentance and so again we're, we're way over here out of fellowship with God because of our sin what, how, what, what steps do we need to take to get back in a right relationship with God. Well, we have four steps here. Four steps that the Spirit of God outlines for us through the example uh, of David that all of us need to take to repent and get right with God. You ready? Step number one. 
cry for mercy. That's where it starts. Cry for mercy. Notice verses one and two. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's repentance began by by pleading with God for grace and mercy. And we know that simply defined grace is getting what we don't deserve and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. What did David deserve? To die. Not just once, but twice. We, We hear of people getting a double life sentence because of the horrific nature of their crime, right? Well, he deserved to to have a double death sentence, if you will, because according to the Jewish law, adultery and murder were both crimes punishable by death. David had committed two sins for which the Mosaic law provided no forgiveness. There was no prescribed animal sacrifices or food offerings that he could present to God to to atone for, for these types of sins, the sin of adultery and murder, I think that's partly why he says in verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. In other words, David was saying, listen, all I got is a broken and contrite heart. I can't bring a ram because you never said to do that. I can't bring a pigeon, I can't bring oil, I can't bring any kind of food. All I got to bring before you is a broken and contrite heart. And so he cries out, God, don't give me what I deserve. I know I deserve to die. Don't, don't, don't kill me, God. Spare my life. That's what I don't deserve. And notice he says, blot out my transgressions. Literally erase or remove them from my life. It's like he's asking God to take his divine eraser and you know, kind of clear the chalkboard or the, the whiteboard of his heart. And then he says in verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's likening sin, his sin to a stain that, that's gotten on him. Uh, in his clothes, if you will. And so he asked God to apply his supernatural cleanser to get the stain out of his life completely. Just remove the stain. And notice how he uses several different words here for sin. Just, just in two verses, he, he, he says, blot out my transgressions. That's the word to describe crossing over a line or going beyond the, the limits or the boundaries set by God. It's like God drew a line in the sand or put up a fence and said, don't go past that line, don't go over that fence, put up a no trespassing sign in a certain area. And we said, whatever, I'm doing it anyway. That's a transgression. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, verse two. That word iniquity has the idea of something that's bent or twisted or perverted. It's really the word for depravity. Notice verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, I was born a sinner, is what he's saying there. And then lastly, he says, and cleanse me from my sin. And this is the general word for sin. It's, it has the idea of missing the mark or falling short of God's standard of perfection. The, the anal- analogy that's often used is that of, a, of an arrow falling short of a target. I mean, we're, we're aiming for the bullseye, and no matter what we do, we, keep fall- we don't even hit the target. We don't even come close to the target. We just keep falling short of God's standard. And the reason why I point that out is because I think this gives us some insight into how David understood the seriousness of sin. It wasn't just very superficial, hey, God, I sinned, I'm sorry. He understood, I I transgressed. This was iniquity, this was perverted. This was was, uh, falling short of your standard for me. There's no, oops, I did it again, right? Uh, This was a mistake or, or, you know, this is just a struggle in my life. I'll never forget hearing a story about Elizabeth Elliot, one of uh, our companions, a friend of ours, was telling us that they were driving 
her from the airport to where she was going to speak, and she was up in the front seat. Elizabeth Elliot was in the front seat, and the passenger seat, and, the, and the, our friend was in the back, and, and they were just discussing, you know, the things they were going on in their lives, and, 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 and our friend was talking about how she was struggling with a particular area in her life, and she said, Elizabeth Elliot whipped around in the seat and said, you mean sinning? <laughs> in other words, we, a lot of stuff we define as, a, this is a struggle in our life. Well, let's just call it what it is. It's sin. And so David is doing that. He said, listen, I deliberately disobeyed you. I defiantly rebelled against you and your word. I did something that you specifically said not to do. The question for us is, do we treat sin this seriously? Because if you don't, right, you'll never feel the need to cry for mercy. I mean, for some of you, you might be reading this and go, you know, that's, that's sweet, that's nice, and, and, and you've never experienced that. Well, that's probably because you're not taking sin very seriously. But those of you that take sin seriously, you, you appreciate what David is saying there. Why? Because you've prayed that yourself. You can relate to what he's saying. Now, if David knew how serious his sin was and and that he deserved to be struck dead for it, where did he get the boldness to come before God and to cry for mercy? Well, notice that David not only understood the greatness of his sin, he also understood the greatness of God's love and compassion. Notice he says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your what? Verse one, your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. And so what David knew to be true about God and what he believed about God's character motivated him to repent. And I'm sure he knew what God had said of himself to to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34 when he revealed himself to Moses. And, And this is what he said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Those words sound familiar? And this is so helpful because I know that some of you have thought, as I have at times, you know what, God will never forgive me for this. This is just too big of a sin. You ever thought that? May I remind you that the Bible says that God's grace is greater than our greatest sin, amen? Or maybe you've said to yourself, you know what, there's no way I can go back and ask God to forgive me again for this because I've asked him so many times already, to forgive me for the same thing, and I just keep doing it. I'm not going to ask him anymore. Well, may I remind you that it was Jesus who said that, we're to, that we are to forgive those who sin against us how many times? Seventy times seven, which means over and 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 over again. And the reason why Jesus told us to forgive others that way is because that's how God forgives us. God would never ask us to forgive others more than he forgives us. God loves to forgive. He's on our side and he's waiting for us to come, if you will, to forgive us. I love Isaiah 55, verses six and seven. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have what? Compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Don't ever wait. Don't ever wait around to return to the Lord. It's always a good time to repent. It's always a good time to to turn around and come back to the Lord. Why? Because he's waiting to have compassion on us and to abundantly pardon our sin. We all need to be like that tax collector in Luke 18, right, who wouldn't even come into the temple and he simply stood at a distance and beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, 
In other words, I, I, I don't know about anybody else in this place, but I know my own heart and I am the worst sinner I know. And I'm unworthy. And so he simply cried to God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And it says that that man went home what? Justified, why? Because he humbled himself. Whereas the other exalted himself. And so the first step that we need to take when we find ourselves over here out of fellowship with God is to go, to turn around and and you say, okay, I've, I've turned around, now how do I get back there? The very first thing we do is we cry for mercy. We cry out for help is what we cry for. Secondly, the second step back to God, if you will, is to confess our sin, to confess our sin. Notice David's confession here in verses three through six. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Notice that David didn't make a little quickie confession here, but he made a a, a complete and thorough confession of his sin to the Lord, and I think there's some misunderstanding, I think, in our minds um, about confession, as if it's just listing off, uh, you know, to God the things that we've done wrong that day, as if he doesn't already know, right? We get to the end of the day, Lord, forgive me for this, and forgive me for that, and oh, remember, you know, I did this, and and God's up there going, yeah, I was there, (laughs) You don't need to tell me what you've done. Confession is far more than just repeating to God the things that you've done, the ways you've sinned on a particular occasion. But to confess literally means to agree with God about our sin. To say the same thing as God does about our sin. That's what it means to confess. So it's not enough just to say, God, I I swore today. I cussed that person out or I got angry today. Well, God's like, yeah, I heard that. I saw that. I knew that. I, I could even see the, the evil motive in your heart today. And you say, Lord, that was wicked. That was evil. That was wrong. That was disobedient. That was rebellion. That was transgression. That was, right? That's what, so you're affirming what God has said in his word about that particular sin. And David's a great example here. Look at the things that David agreed with God about his sin. First of all, he agreed with God that it was his fault. Notice verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Notice just he's continuing on what he already, how he started. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you see what David is saying? He was to blame. He wasn't plea bargaining here with God. He wasn't pleading insanity. He was pleading guilty. He wasn't making any excuses. He wasn't trying to blame anyone else. We're always trying to blame somebody else, aren't we? Well, you know, I, I was. I, I did do that. But if they hadn't or if this had been... Di- no, he just said, it's my fault. I'm 100% to blame. He took full responsibility for his actions. So he agreed with God that it was fault. Number two, he agreed with God that his sin displeased God and that he deserved to be punished for it. Look at verse four. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So David realized exactly what he had done. He hadn't sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah as much as he had sinned against who? God, he had sinned against Bathsheba, he had sinned against Uriah, but ultimately he had sinned against God, and ultimately all sin is against God. And that's why I love Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife when she was seducing him to sleep with her, and what did he say? How then could I do this great evil and sin against you and your husband? Is that what he said? No, he said, how could I sin, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? See, Joseph lived as, as uh, the reformers talked about, quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. R.C. Sproul's kind of popularized that, that expression. Um, 
but it just means to live in the presence of God, that you are living every second in God's sight. That's what we mean when we say God's omnipresent. He's omniscient, right? And that's what he says here. Notice he says, against you and you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. There's no such thing as a secret sin. We, we talk about secret sin, right? There's no such thing as a secret sin because every sin that we commit, we do it or speak it or think it or feel it, right, in the very presence of God. It was as if we went into his throne room, busted the doors open, walked in, there's God on his throne, and we did or said or, or felt whatever we did that was sinful right in his presence, in his sight, I've sinned in your sight. You, you saw what happened. I, I kind of uh, you know, closed the curtains and shut the doors and had this little affair behind closed doors, but you saw the whole thing. And that little note that I sent was kind of a secret between me and Joab, and nobody else saw it, but you saw it. You know what that note said. I have a good pastor friend who tells a story about how he was counseling a young couple uh, who were dating and they had gotten involved in some premarital sexual activity and so thankfully God convicted them and they came to him and, and, and they were um, just confessing to him and wanting to be accountable to him and it was a great opportunity for him to shepherd them and, and, and before he um, provided them comfort, he, he told them, he said, he said hey, I, I just want you to know somebody saw you. And he said their eyes got really big and their face just went white and they thought, who, who was watching? Who, I thought this was in private, what we did. And, who, and he said, God saw you. And he said there was almost a sense of relief in their expression when he said that it was just God that saw him. Hebrews 4.13 talks about how everything that is done, right, is done before the Lord. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I don't think we think about that enough, do we? We're good at checking to see if anybody's looking, and we forget that God is right there. And so David knew that God had seen what he had done and he accepted the fact that he deserved to be punished. And essentially when he says this, he says you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, I deserve whatever I've got coming to me. I'm willing to accept whatever punishment you feel necessary. The, the picture that comes to my mind is a, a little kid that, that comes with the stolen change that he had stolen off his dad's dresser along with his dad's belt. And he says, Daddy, I, I stole this off your dresser and, and I know it was wrong. And here's your money back and here's your belt because I know I deserve a spanking. That's what David's saying here. And this is a good reminder that if we're not willing to accept the consequences of our sin, then we're probably not truly repentant. We're probably just sorry that we got caught. And so he agreed that his sin had displeased God, that he deserved to be punished. He also agreed with God about his depravity. His depravity, notice verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now he wasn't blaming his mom for his sin. We know that because he's been taking the blame fully up to this point. But I think he was simply acknowledging the fact that there was never a moment in his existence that he wasn't a sinner. That he was born a sinner. He had a sin nature. And so David understood that he was depraved, not just dysfunctional. And I think one of the greatest lies of our society is that, the, that, that man is essentially good and they come out, you know, they're born essentially good, morally neutral, if you will, and, 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 and then society makes them bad or people make them bad or, or circumstances make them choose evil things. Now listen, we, we come out sinners. 
We're, we're, we're vipers in a diaper is what we are, okay? <laughs> we, we are wicked to the core. We sin because we're sinners. And so David's basically saying, listen, God, you and I both know sin is who I am. And I'll be back. This is not the last conversation and the last confession that we're going to have. So he agreed with God about his depravity. But then lastly, he agreed with God about his integrity. He agreed with God about his integrity. Look at verse 6. He says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. So David understood what God expected of him. God expects sincerity, not hypocrisy. He expects purity, not impurity. God doesn't want us to have have any secret sins hidden in our hearts that, that no one else knows about but us and him. He wants us to be real. He wants us not to be fake. And he, he basically says, listen, I, I have not been a man of integrity. I've not been the same person uh, in private that I've been in, that I portray to be in public. But you'll teach me how to be a man of integrity. You'll teach me how to live a pure and holy life. You will make me know wisdom. In other words, I'm going to learn from this experience. And so instead of concealing his sin, which he had been doing, right? David confessed it. And it reminds me of Proverbs 28, 13, which says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. In other words, what we cover and try to hide, God will uncover somehow, some way, someday. But what we uncover, God will cover in his grace and mercy and compassion. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think one of the best books ever written on on repentance is Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance. And that's a little Puritan paperback, some of you may have. Um, he was quoting Origen, an early church father, who said this, quote, confession is the vomit of the soul. It's kind of a gross graphic picture, right? But it's a good one. Because he says that If confession is the vomit of the soul, then our conscience is eased of the burden that lies on it. And we've all had that experience when we've kind of been queasy and just upset stomach, and we're like, man, I just feel like I need to throw up, and it just kind of went on and on, and finally, you threw up, right? And and, and you felt better. You're like, man, I'm so glad. Some of you are like, I mean, I I just want to throw up to get this over with, Right? Well, that's the idea here, that confession is the vomit of the soul and and the conscience is relieved of that burden that lies on it. It's not fun. Throwing up isn't fun. Nobody likes to throw up. It's like one of the worst things in my, I hate to throw up. It's not fun, but guess what? The result afterwards is, is, is good, isn't it? You're so glad you did. Watson, just adding his own two cents to (laughs) Origen's analogy of confession being the vomit of the soul, he said this, Watson said, now when we have vomited up sin by confession, we must not return to this vomit. And of course, he's referencing that verse in the Bible that talks about a dog returning to his vomit, which we all go, ooh, that is disgusting. And most of us, if we have pets, you have dogs, you've seen that happen, and you're like, ah, get over here, Fido, that's disgusting, get in here, I'm never going to let you lick me again, and right, we we just like wash their, hose them off, you know, it's just nasty. And guess what, we're unholy humans, can you imagine how much more gross and disgusting and nasty it must be for a holy God to see us repent of our sin 
and then go back to it. I think there's, a, there's one more element of confession that's not stated here, but it's implied here and really throughout Scripture, and that's when we confess sin, we are agreeing with God not to do it again. When we confess our sin, we're agreeing with God not to do it again. And beloved, again, the issue is not if we're going to sin. <laughs> the issue is when we sin, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to repent of it? Or are we going to return to it? And here David gives us some instruction, an example of how to repent of sin. We'll come back next week and we'll hit the next two steps, finish it up uh, next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and just how helpful, how practical it is. And Lord, we just confess to you that we were brought forth in iniquity and in sin. All of our mothers conceived us. And Lord, there's not going to be a day that goes by while we're here on this earth, even now that we're saved and the power of sin is broken and the penalty of sin uh, has been satisfied. Lord, there's still indwelling sin and there's still uh, the world and the flesh and the devil that we battle against and, 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 and every day we're, we're going to have to deal with our sin. Whether it's in our thoughts and our actions, our motives, our, our attitudes. And so we thank you for giving us some instruction in your word of how to confess sin to you, how to seek your forgiveness, how to get back right with you so that we could maintain close fellowship with you. I pray, Lord, that while we are all sinners here this morning in this church, that you would make us good repenters. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.